and welcome to Make My Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Jana Hill. And I'm Elias Rosner. And this week, we cry foul as we're transported to another dimension, the 1970s, where comics were a quarter and it was possible to potentially support yourself on minimum wage. Quack Celsius. I was shocked, even though I really shouldn't have been, at when this book was set, when I started reading, because I did not realize it was coming out in 1976, which we are about as far away from 1976 now as the Roaring Twenties were from Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck was closer to the end of World War II than we were to Howard the Duck now. Yeah, which is wild. So this just felt like ancient to you? Yes, but also no. <laughs> like there were, I was reading this, I'm like, I can see a lot of in terms of stylistic things, stuff that continued well into like the eighties and nineties and that you'd say characterized other types of books. Like I was reading a couple of these issues and I was like, this feels like a Cerberus issue or like just one of those indie black and white uh comics that were coming out in the 80s yeah uh ninja turtles has yeah. its uh, origins and something like that and the tick yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but maybe he, usagi mm-hmm. yojimbo even though that's a little bit more serious yeah uh, maybe but but usagi has always been not different but it it doesn't didn't feel like those other books um yeah i i, I rescind usagi yeah but uh, yeah i haven't read any cerberus but like that it, or I've read an issue or two, but that was the vibe I was getting. Yeah, well, and it's also, um, it's like this indie comic spirit. It's a little bit anarchic. Uh, you see shades of it that like reach some of the X Men stuff. It's like this very Bronze Age uh, thing, and you see it yeah. with um, uh, our Crumb stuff. You see it in um. I'm trying to think of, like, other uh, 70s, like, underground comic scene. But not just underground. Like, um, did we read any uh, classic Excalibur together? No. No. The the oldest thing we have read uh, was... Uh, well, Kree Scroll War. The Avenger... Yeah, Kree Scroll War, which was 60s. But I think this is the oldest thing after that we've read. Well, didn't we also do the original run of Spider-Man? Oh, you're right. We did read OG Spider-Man. Yeah, so that was the oldest thing. But yeah, this is, we haven't done, this is Bronze Age through and through, and we haven't done a lot of Bronze Age. That's what we're trying to say here, is this is a really (laughs) Bronze Age sensibility. And um, so that's like epitomized by uh, different Marvel milestones for the Bronze Age are, a lot of people say the issue uh, where Gwen Stacy dies is kind of the transition from Silver to Bronze Age, because now the, we're, it's, the soap opera has teeth in this way it didn't before, and there's kind of like a Hmm. permanence and an expectation that this is going to be going on. Yeah, and here you can kind of feel that. You can definitely feel it in the tendency towards grounding within real places, like Cleveland or whatever, and really reflecting, well, the world outside your window, as Marvel likes to say, Um, and, like, time and all of that. Maybe we'll get more into this as we're talking about specific stories, but, like, Howard here is being um, presented opposite Spider-Man, where Spider-Man swings around and he's, like, the everyday man on the street in New York. Mm-hmm. Howard is the everyday duck on the street in Cleveland. And the, <laughs> the Marvel Universe, that's what Cleveland's like. And, I, you know, I live in the greater Cleveland area, and I have some thoughts about that, which we will talk about specifically in issue one. 
I'm ready for that. Um, but like, it's got this Bronze Age thing. But you remember when we were reading those original Spider-Man issues? There's, I think it's the one where we meet uh, Phineas Mason, the terrible tinkerer. And there's just these like aliens that aren't scrolls. Yeah. And it's like issue six of Spider-Man or whatever. Now he's just like fighting green aliens that are hiding in like a basement of a community rec center. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just like what Marvel is like. And there's a lot of that spirit alive in Howard. And I think that's going away in the Bronze Age. Now the Bronze Age is becoming about the regular cast of characters and the ensemble that's been built up over the last couple decades at Marvel. Yeah. But Howard yeah. knows that as a funny book, it's got it's going to introduce characters that are like one-offs. Yeah, it, it's trying to fit more into the greater Marvel universe as opposed to constructing the greater Marvel universe. Yeah. I guess is what you're trying what we're trying to get at. Yeah, I, that's actually not how I was thinking about it, but I like that a lot. It's it's um it's doing creation that's similar to what Spider-Man was doing, but it's also like in response to Spider-Man because yeah. it's afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, for those who may not have been reading the book, yeah. Even though you Which know, is chill. Yeah. What is <laughs> Howard the Duck? Howard the Duck was a kind of a ca- comedy parody series that came out in 1976. But Howard had debuted earlier. Um, but before we kind of get into that, I want to know, what is your experience with Howard the Duck? Well, um, when I was first getting back into Marvel in college in the early 2010s, um, I started doing research on anytime I would encounter a Marvel thing, because this was the first time I was reading comics with like the benefit of Wikipedia at my fingertips. Mm-hmm. And just because of the time I was reading comics, one of the first big Marvel things I read was all of Civil War. And Howard shows up in Civil War um, somewhat memorably. He tries to register, and everyone's like, "That being a duck isn't a superpower. Get out of here. <laughs> Which is a perfect Howard bit for Civil War. I don't remember who wrote that one off. I should have looked it up. But then I would I read on Wikipedia, I was just like, so what's up with this duck character who looks like Donald Duck and lives in Cleveland and is, lives in, and is a Marvel character? And Howard is blessedly one of those characters, one of those like funny characters like Lobo, where just like the list of silly things in his history is like such a good read. (laughs) Because you're just coming across phases like, uh, what's the world he's from called? It's not Half World, that's Rocket Raccoon's world. But it's the same thing as that. It's like Duckburg, basically. Yeah, I don't I don't think we get a name for it here. It's been named at some point in Marvel history, but uh, he gets, like, teleported from the Duckburg dimension, and then, like, you read phrases like quack-foo, and you're just like, oh my god, I want to read that issue. Mm -hmm. And so I went back, and I've actually read some of these issues, because I was just, like, poking around, and back then, um, comics... Uh, certain trades were kind of harder to get, and certain pirated comics were easier to get, so I read a lot of old comics that way. And I also had a bunch of uh, those DVDs, although I don't think I ever got Howard off of those. I think that was tragically pirated. Recently, when I was reading these Howards, I read them on Hoopla, a streaming service that allows and I recommend on every episode. And then the issues that weren't on Hoopla, I had to read on Marvel Unlimited. My history with Howard is, is I was going to say similar, because I definitely read that Civil War issue. I think it was Civil War Choosing Sides, Howard the Duck. I think that's what it was called. Um, but I don't remember any of that. Yeah, it was like a chapter and a one-shot. But my main introduction was first through people making fun of the movie. Right, there's a legendarily bad movie. Yeah. Produced but not directed by George Lucas. No, produced by. Yeah, we yeah. found that out. I was disappointed to learn that. I was really hoping it was it was directed or written by him. No dice. Um, but the, it was actually the Chip Zdarsky and Joe, uh, Quinones series that came out in 2014, which we'll be talking about next week. 
or next episode. Next episode. I do that all next the time. episode. We're we're a we're a twice monthly podcast. And we know that. Do we though? Do I though? Because every time I'll be writing our description, I'll be like, next week. I'm like, no, next episode. Maybe you want to be weekly. Oh uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't have the. I, I I could not edit that fast. Yeah, that's that's probably true. Yeah. Howard the Duck though Howard was the edited. Duck, though. Actually, I don't know who edited these issues. I did not write that down. He has so many editors. Well, that's and that's what we're we're getting into. So um, yeah. So you did, but you've never read these issues before today, right? Or be- no, until this is the first this time I've read the original Howard the Duck stuff. Um, I wanted, I've been wanting to read this for a long time, you know, since reading the newer th- stuff, um, and you know, just hearing about it and knowing, being like, what was this series like? So briefly, I'm just gonna kind of go through big long arc of Howard's history. Stop me if you have any questions. But I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna push through because this is surprising surprisingly large amount <laughs> it's weirdly more granular than most comic characters which is kind of yeah. like part of his fun and his mystique yeah exactly so howard was created by steve gerber and uh val mayrick in 1973 uh he debuted in adventure into fear number 19 which was a man thing comic also written by gerber um steve gerber had been writing man thing for a few years uh and you know he was just kind of a one-off character well, I thought uh, so. Man, thing as I understand it is, uh, the, he's he's the guardian of the nexus of all realities, and yes. the and Gerber's idea there was just like, if I ever want to just spontaneously change genre, I'll just like make up a plot device location that we can just like fall through a portal into any sort of story. Pretty much, and that's like what the Man Thing comic basically is: is he just tells whatever he wants, and it just pops out of the portal, and Man Thing has to deal with it. Yep. And sometimes it's a weird duck. <laughs> sometimes it's a weird duck. In this one, the story goes, he had come up with the idea of one of his sword and sorcery characters coming out of a jar of peanut butter. And he wanted something to talk to- top that. And so he told the artist, Val, he's like, just make, make a, a duck chewing a cigar pop out of the bushes and talk to them. And he became a one-off character. That's so uh, 70s. In, in this story. And then he's killed off in the, in the story. He's thrown into a cosmic whatever. And he's gone. <laughs> That's also and then, so 70s. A couple years later, he shows up again in uh, Giant Size Man Thing for as a backup story where he fights uh, well, Hell Cow and I think it was Bufo the Devil Frog. So in the Hoopla version I was reading, all these issues were included and I yes. skimmed them just because I was like, yeah, I can take a look at this cool art. They're a lot of fun. They are fun. If if anyone wants to read the, the issues that we're not going to be talking about, they're in the the big collections. They're a lot of fun. Uh, so 1976 rolls around. It gets very... And you know, people have been clamoring for more Howard the Duck. They love the character. Maybe not as like a solo series, but they just wanted to see this, this ridiculous duck that was chewing a cigar show up again. So they have a new series, and it's ongoing. It runs for 31 issues. Um, Steve Gerber leaves around issue 26, uh, and by leaves, I mean he was taken off the book, and then after issue 31, they change formats, and it becomes a black and white magazine for nine issues. It was bi-monthly. This happened to a lot of books in the, in the era, I think, ones that were selling decently well, but not well enough. Well, I think this was, was Jim Shooter editor yet? Or are we still too yes. early for that? 
Jim Shooter. Yes. Yeah, this this seems like a weird. Jim Shooter is like a, a energetic ideas guy. I feel like he's like ah the the sales aren't high enough. We'll make it a black and white magazine. That'll get a new demographic. I feel like like Shooter is like it never stops moving. Yeah, and a lot of people. He's, he's a meddler. Mm-hmm. He's a meddler. That's why what you're gonna say, right? Like uh, anecdotally, a lot of people are like ah Shooter fucked up my project. Yeah, but I was just gonna say anecdotally people weren't like sales were slipping and people weren't really liking Howard post Gerber for whatever you, reason. I I know the vibe of why Gerber was ousted. Do you know details? Um yes, and I will get to that in a cool. minute. Uh, <laughs> but first, after it got switched to Black and White magazine, that got canned after nine issues. Uh and then eventually we got an issue 32 and an issue 33. Of the original series, both not penned by um, Gerber. Uh, They were, you know, old scripts or new scripts by other creators that were, you know, they were released afterwards. Right around then is when a lot of the, um, the lawsuits were starting to happen. There were, you know, that's when there was a lot of tension between Gerber. Things had been settled. Things had not been. But eventually... They put out a 32 and a 33 in the original series. And then, you know, Howard the Ducky bounced around for a while. He showed up in a Spider-Man team-up book for an issue. He showed up in a couple issues of Defenders. And he's such a fun piece of, like, lore and history that there's this, like, mean-spirited uh, duck who goes on, like, DuckTales adventures. Exactly. In the Marvel so, Universe. Mm-hmm. And then... It's just the he has such a weird trajectory because he shows up in some issues of Savage Dragon, the Image Comics character, for a couple. Yeah, of I was issues. wondering about that because I'll get it. That ties into the the Gerber leaving the titles thing. Interesting. A little bit. Um, and then we got a six issue Max miniseries by Gerber in two thousand and one, which I read uh, when I was first getting back into Marvel, and it's weird. Yeah, it's weird. It's pretty. Uh, I mean, I haven't read it, but it felt like it was in accounts. bad taste at the time, and I feel like a uh, bad taste in two thousand one probably feels like something different in twenty twenty two. Yeah, yeah. And then in two thousand eight ish, we got a four issue miniseries by Ty Templeton, uh, and then you know he you know he shows up in random issues here and there, and then he gets this new ongoing, which ended up being two fairly limited series. Um, in 2014-2015. And that's most of what's ha- happened with Howard the Duck over the years. He really hasn't had much sustained staying power leading a title, or even being like a side character in a title, but he's always around. Well, and he's such a specific like vibe and tone for Marvel. And this is just like um, Howard and his weird brief inclusion in the MCU like really speaks to something elementally fun about the comics, I think. Mm-hmm. Where, um, as with the original Avengers movie, it felt so novel for, like, one minute to see, um, like, a space wizard team up with a super armor dude and, like, a science monster and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, like, some secret agents. Those are all <laughs> different types of movies, but they're happening at the same time. So, like, it's even more fun when you, like, go all out and you have, like, a funny animal team up with, like, a kung fu master and, uh, I don't know, a wizard doctor. Just like mm-hmm. you could, you can have all the different characters. It's just like one more fun ingredient. And like uh, I was, like I think that that Civil War story that we both were introduced to Howard with is a perfect Howard story because it's so funny that Howard, the, the tone of Howard is that he's going to get over that he's so weird, but he gets overlooked because even though he's weird, he's not like um, that impactful. Yeah, 
on the world around him. He's kind of more of a victim of circumstance than he is uh, like a mover and a shaker like the superheroes are supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And so in Civil War, it's funny that his conflict is everyone else's like has a lot of feelings about should I register? Should I not register? And Howard's drama is he tries to register and can't because it's like because the American systems are crumbling and uh, like the... (laughs) And bureaucracy is a bitch and stuff. And like, yeah. and so this absurd duck ends up being like a parody of everyday worries in this like really super uh, fantastical universe. And that's the vibe he does. That's like, I think you could do that with any Marvel story. You could just be like, what would one of us be doing? And what's like the sad version of the everyday Marvel story, but happening to a cranky duck? Yeah. Yeah. His versatility, versatility, goodness, tripping over my words, uh, is kind of is you know versatile well he comes from the nexus of all universes and yeah and within these issues he he crosses genres a bunch oh yeah all the time yeah so the elephant in the room surrounding howard the duck is that he is he's involved in one of the first high profile creators rights lawsuits that were happening in kind of the 80s as you know artists and and writers and who were asserting their you know their rights over their characters for that were previously created and under work for higher conditions or they were arguing they weren't that they were co-owned that owned and they had to be licensed out now we know where this ends because of uh the fight for creators rights is not over no interestingly though the copyright act of 1976 made it easier for creators to wrest control back but it it kind of did it more for screenwriters rather than you know screenwriters who had control over their scripts there were a whole bunch of provisions put in but stuff like this it was more thorny and it was harder to really get now Stuff like this being like, this is a character, an original yeah. character that a guy created, and the series is what if he met all the characters owned by Marvel, but why does that uh, necessarily imply that Marvel owns the character just because he's next to Spider-Man? Yeah. So, part of why, um, there's an entire, there's a very, very good article that is unfortunately only available through the Wayback Machine from 2014 that details both the history of Howard the Duck and all the people involved in it and all of these lawsuits where the person read the lawsuits, brought up all the documents, put them and put them together. It's a very good article. Um, it was on a website called The Hooded Utilitarian. Ooh. Yeah. Not very 2014. Very a weird name. Um, yeah. It was called All Quacked Up by Robert Stanley Martin. Uh, it's where I'm getting a lot of the information on this uh, from. Because he brings up, he's like, here's the licensing agreement that Gerber signed. Here's the back of the check that he signed for the for the issue where Howard the Duck debuted. And here's the licensing statement on the back. I Whether, love that. Yeah. But also how the Marvel contract he signed beforehand was the binding part. And they just put the statement on all the checks as like basically saying, this is what you signed. By getting this check, you acknowledge that this is a thing that will happen. Um, and also apparently... Gerber contractually agreed never to sue or otherwise challenge Marvel's exclusive proprietary rights to Howard the Duck. However, in a later contract, he had signed that while he was under contract at Marvel, let me see if I can find the exact quote, but uh, basically, while he was under contract at Marvel, he would be paid 
or he, he would retain rights and rights of first refusal for various parts of the Howard the Duck, you know, brand for Howard's um, look for whether or not he shows up in another, um, what's it called? Another medium. So movies, TV shows, et cetera, et cetera. Basically what happened was in 1977, he became an employee as opposed to a freelancer of Marvel. His salary was $16,818, which wow. in 2014 dollars, which was when this article is from, was $65,577. That's more than I make at like my normal job today. Yeah. So he did have to write, he would have to script at least 50 comic book pages per month. Or 51 comic book pages per month, the equivalent of three monthly series, and edit 12 standard-sized comic books per year. Um, His salary was based on a script-writing page, which is approximately, adjusted for inflation, $103 and $103 per write script-writing page, and $195 per editing page. That's the so that's like very inflation. much a full-time comic book load. Yeah. That's like a full-time job. Yeah. That's not like a... He would get there are health, creators... life, life insurance. Yeah. He got two weeks of paid vacation. This was like life employment, employment. 1970s, man. Work, 1970s. Places of work used to give out life insurance. That sounds like a Howard the Duck joke to me. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. You're very right. I can't um, even imagine something like that. I can't either. And I, not, not in this nexus of realities. Not this spot on the nexus. Ah, <laughs> uh, here it is. The contract outlines several pri- privileges Gerber would have given. Uh, first, write a first refusal for scripting or editing duties on any Howard project beyond the series. Um, and if he didn't want to, he would be consulted. He would work for pay as a consultant on any film or television licensing. Um, and he would, you know, be able to put in- input onto any policy change about licensing for future stuff. He still didn't, the contract didn't say he owned it still or co-owned it. And, you know, a lot of those problems cropped up. The long and short of it is the case was dismissed before it ever even got to trial because he didn't really have a leg to stand on. All the contracts that he had signed explicitly stated that he had signed over the rights for the characters. Whether or not that's right, different question. Well, this is Um, the case with, like, um... There's a lot of, uh, you hear about this, uh, Alan Moore is yeah. another famous example, but it's not that anyone's, or anymore, it's not that the argument right now is that the, uh, they didn't sign the contract, it's that the contract was uh, extortionate in the first place, and um, and that's what's being challenged. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, not exactly honored by the law historically, but seems like a pretty decent ethical argument to make. Yeah. And I think that's why people often do. It's easier to argue in favor of Marvel for characters created in Gerber's era in the 70s than all the stuff created early, early on uh, in terms of does Marvel actually get to own it in the way they do? Or like Superman, even though the way they settled that was weird. But like once the company had been around for a good decade or so, they had pretty consistent contracts of you work for us the the things you create this is how it is but you know whether or not that's good or right uh different (laughs) different question so this is all happening while gerber is is on the book he is also editor for howard the duck at this point he's been editor for a while and around six months into this contract 
he his contract was terminated for running writing the Howard the Duck newspaper strip that he was writing, and then eventually <laughs> he was terminated from the main book as well. Okay, uh, so I know that there's a Howard runs for president, and a bunch of people write him in on the ballot. Yeah, this is that was well before this. But th- is that related to the newspaper comic? Is that where he's like rallying support for Howard? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think the Howard the the strip started until later. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure about that. One. Strip is also such a sensible place for Howard. He just has the energy of a comic strip. Yeah, he really does. He delivers jokes. Oh, one other fun thing. Uh, Marvel got sued by Disney, asking them to change the look of Howard because he was too close to Donald. He really is, too. <laughs> he is. So they put him in pants, and that solved it. Although yeah. it, t- it took them, like, two years and, like, a couple other threats of suits for that to happen. <laughs> yeah, and these issues, he's mostly not wearing pants. Yeah. Um, that uh, happened around issue 21, 22. Um, that makes sense. And Gerber left, or was fired essentially in it uh, by issue 26 um the and there's a whole bunch of stuff this this article is really in depth and no one comes out looking good which i feel like tends to be the the thing the thing to do <laughs> unfortunately i mean uh i right now i'm pretty sympathetic to the per- the the power differential in the story uh, oh really i meant like in the, in the person to person interactions like between gerber and the artists and the artists and and oh, the editors I, like all of those the the interpersonal stuff I see what no you're one saying, comes yeah. out looking good um, right and and um it's kind of it's messy i'm i'm going to make a lot of music metaphors as we talk about the issues themselves but um what you're describing kind of there's like this fleetwood mac thing <laughs> kind of where yeah. like a there's just like a lot of tension between the different members of the band and like you can kind of you think you can taste it in the art a little bit. Yeah. And part of that is also why there are so many artists that cycle through. Gerber was hard to work with. The reason he was fired was because he was perpetually late on all, on his on his scripts. Um, although, according to this, cause for his removal is disputed. Gerber alleges that it was overpayment schedules for the artists. Others say that it was because he couldn't get in his work on a timely basis. Which, to me, frankly, sounds like saying the same thing in two different ways. Yeah. Two yeah. the same story. I think it was... And Gerber himself is an artist, too, which uh, makes all of this both make more and less sense. Yeah. Because, like, you think he'd have sympathy to the artist, but also that's why he's not having sympathy to the artist, because he's like, well, you don't draw it like I do when I do it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a really interesting read. I think I'll put the link in the uh, show notes when we get it. Um, it's really long. This thing is... I, I got through maybe half of it before this episode, and then I had to stop. Um, but I wanted to, to touch on a lot of that because I thought it was very interesting. Uh, That's good and research. In Thank you. in part because... So I glossed over this, but the first issue of uh, Howard the Duck, the actual series, was co-plotted by the artist... Um, but the artist wanted to be co-script because that, or co-written because that's what he felt he did on that issue. That was not given to him. I don't remember if that was because of Gerber, because of the editors, or whatever the case. And so that's why he's only there for two issues. It's going to be really interesting looking back at our current era of comics because um, I feel like we're going to have... A, there's like an opposite vibe that's weird where there's like people were like, no, no, put the artist's name first. No, your name first. No, you're like this like effusive um, trying to intentionally uh, reverse convention. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I wonder... What that's going to say about us when we look back. I wonder if we're going to think that that was really brave or if we're going to think that that was uh, 
really uh, putting wallpaper on it. I mean, maybe, but if it affected people's pay rates, like what would have happened here, uh, I, th- I think we can err on the side of increasing people's pay rates. Oh, yeah. I'm talking. Yes, absolutely. There's For there's sure. like real workplace things happening here. And I work in a workplace and I get that. I, but I'm talking about the, um, oh, the... oh, well, I think I scripted it. Are you sure you scripted? I think you more plotted it. It's such like a oh. stupid 70s argument to have. And now in 2020, I feel like every in the 2020s, everyone's like, um, please, please, can we say co-created, co-wrote, and co-storytellers? Uh, I really okay. think of us as co-storytellers, the uh, writer, the artist. All of us yeah. are storytellers, if you think about it. The reader is a storyteller. I feel like we really get like overly effusive at um, inclusion because we don't want the right, the artist to seem like a second stringer. But that's like a really myopic perspective because when this comic was coming out, no one gave a shit about the writers. Everyone was all about the artist. Yeah, yeah. Although, like... Like you said, he would have gotten more money in reprints with that credit change, which is fascinating to me. Right. If you get co-writer, you get more money with the reprint. Well, because you're doing two things, so you're getting paid twice. Yeah. I, I would, I would, lo- I probably could have spent an entire two-hour episode just going through this one article, being like, and then this happened, and then they said this to this person. This no, that's all really comics, interesting. Comics fighting, infighting is so interesting because it's like you're like. I get it, but you're also like, what is going on? Well, it's really petty artist diva stuff, and so many comics, there's such big type A personalities, especially in the 70s, when everyone is, like, going to parties now and doing a lot of drugs. <laughs> it's, uh, the 70s are getting kind of groovy yeah. and grimy. Um, and some of the story that you're telling me I'm a little bit familiar with, because this is, like, all part of the Howard lore, and I know a little bit about Gerber. I, You know, when you hang out in comic fan spaces, you find crazy Gerber fans. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that I didn't know, and that was really fascinating. And there's going to be a pretty obvious turning point when we're going through the issues, which I believe we're going to do shortly, mm-hmm. where I wrote in my notes something, and then I crossed it out, and I'm going to point this out to you, um, how I interpreted it as a reader in this like very raw way that you're... And then I looked it up, and I was I saw some of what you're telling me, and I just like felt it happening without realizing it. <laughs> and I will yeah. tell you when we get there. Okay. So, we read... For this issues one through eight and then 30 and 31 which are the last the first eight and the last two of his original solo series i'm gonna break down the creators there are a lot of them so strap in yeah issues one through eight were written by steve gerber and issues 31 and 32 were written by bill mantelo they were penciled although it Sometimes they're credited as illustrator, and sometimes they're credited as penciler. Depends on the issue. Uh, Frank Brenner, who co-plotted issue one and drew issue two. John Buscema, issue three. Gene Colan did four through eight, and then 30 and 31. They were inked by Steve Lealoa, issues one through eight, and then Alan Milgram, who is still doing stuff today, credited as Al Milgram, um, colored by... This is where it starts to get really fun. Issue one, Frank Brunner. Issues two through five and 30, Michelle Wolfman. Glynis Ween, issue six. Mary Severin, issue seven. Jan Cohen, issue eight. And George Russos, issue 31. And then they were lettered by John Costanza, issues one and six. (laughs) Issue two was Tom Orzachowski. Annette Kowecki was issues three and four. Irv Watanabe, 5, 8, and 31, Jim Novak, number 7, and Elaine Hainel, issue 30. And some of these were only credited as either, like, you know, Elaine H. or I. Watanabe. 
Oh, so you went crazy and you want credit is what you're saying. You're Every time you saw a name, you're like, who was publishing comics in this era who that could have been? And you went crazy? No, most of them had their full name in like the next issue or the issue before it. <laughs> the only person that I had to look up separately was George Russos and Elaine Hainel. Uh, and those were both, I think, credited full with the full names. It looked like it was a space problem. Like they um, ran out of space in the, in the on the masthead at the top, and they were like, uh, "Abbreviate one of the one of the last names," because everyone yeah. had an initial. That's funny. Yeah, I, you, that was common back then. You see that in yeah. a lot of seventies comics when you read them. Yeah, I didn't know. I hadn't thought that that was the reason that you just said, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Anyway, wild. that's a whole lot of names. It switches a lot. Yeah. And we're gonna talk a little bit about the story of Howard the Duck. And once we get into like continuity stuff, I got I got stuff to say. I know Marvel continuity. Um, but we're gonna be doing that after a short commercial break. Hello, podcast listeners. We're the hosts of the DC3Cast. I'm Zach. I'm Vince. And I'm Brian. Each week, we discuss most of the new releases from DC Comics, focusing mainly on Rebirth, Wildstorm, and Young Animal. We also look at the news of the week, discuss the film and television adaptations of DC material, and dig into industry rumors. We've also had a number of DC creators on our show, like Scott Snyder, Jim Lee, Christopher Priest, Steve Orlando, and Joshua Williamson. So, if you like Borat jokes, no bad to end Dio impressions, this is bad, what the f***? And an in-depth look at DC each week, join us every Wednesday morning at multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. Come get Jurgens with us welcome back we are here talking about howard the duck and we're going to be diving into the issues that we read these very very 70s issues i i always think that you read a lot more old marvel than you have because you're so exhaustive of how you read your modern marvel but you're always kind of shocked when we go back it's hard i think part of it is I just found it hard to go back all the way to the beginning. When something is long enough, I'm like, I don't need to start all the way back there. <laughs> if something has enough of a history, or specifically in this case, like if I were to read One Piece, I'm starting at volume one. I'm not starting at volume 70. Well, yeah, as we outlined in the first half of the episode, like uh, Howard's history is so labyrinthine that it's, it was never meant for you to go back that. That's only mm-hmm. an exercise you do to make it in a podcast episode like this and like for like a particular like academic curiosity but it's not like yeah. it's not a good way to read a story they didn't write it to be a good story no, that way no not not in that way at least but these issues um, were weird they're weird they're dense some of the humor translated for me some of it did not some of it did um, not and the um what there's if you read other bronze age superhero comics uh captain america of this era spider-man of this era it's very um i don't want to say like formulaic but like they figured it out and they figured out how to do this soap opera adventure issue to issue month to month thing Mm -hmm. but the the 70s like indie comics feel a little bit more uh frenetic and impatient they are like stuffed with ideas and they jump from one thing to the next um and this is, like, much closer to that than it is to Spider-Man. For sure. It Like, issues have themes, but sometimes <laughs> there's not one story. No, yeah. And interestingly, it does that, you know, building up kind of the, a long-term plot in the background without it actually building. It does that very well. Like totally. We, we've got yeah. this plot with the, the bus lady and her kidneys. Uh, the Kidney Lady. I'm going to talk about the Kidney Lady in a second. But, in a, but we're going to start with Howard the Duck issue one. Uh, trapped in a world he never made is the, uh, like, 
weird tagline under it. And I never I, understood that. It's on all of them. I get the trapped in a world, but the he never made. Oh, it's just simply he never asked for this. He He's a victim of circumstance. He was tossed from one world into one that he has no control over, and now he doesn't understand it. Yeah. I mean, he's... I love that tagline. <laughs> I barely understand it. Right. But it's, but it's our world, ostensibly. Um, and I love that tagline. It's like, here comes Daredevil, the man without fear. And I, I they gotta do, like, a really awesome, like, gritty Howard ongoing in the style of Daredevil called Howard the Duck, trapped in a world he never made. <laughs> right away in this issue, we establish that Howard is from, is from Cleveland. Now, I really like this touch in some ways, and yes, and in other ways, I roll my eyes and it's fine. But, um... I really like the idea of establishing other Marvel heroes who are very attached to where they are because so many Marvel characters are so strongly associated with New York. Yeah. Spider-Man being the obvious example, but, like, you can't take Doctor Strange out of the Greenwich Village in Manhattan. Not easily. Uh, right, you can put, you can make Doctor Strange, um, you just can't put him anywhere in the U.S. and have him make sense. He doesn't make sense in uh, Austin, Texas. No, I could see him in Boston, but... I've seen only because you've seen him hang out with the ghost of Ben Franklin a bunch of times. <laughs> but it, that's Philly. Ah, Ben Franklin hung out in Boston. There's Ben Franklin <laughs> stuff in Boston. Sure there is. But so I love the idea that um, all the different cities get their own heroes, and every time they do that, I wish they would follow through with it a little bit more. Um, yeah. And Howard, and then Cleveland getting Howard is such a hacky joke. Because I feel like um, uh, Cleveland is just the worst city. Was like such a, like, uh, what's the deal with airplane food leveled stand-up bit? Mm-hmm. And I, and I don't, you know, I'm I'm originally a New Yorker. I live in the greater Cleveland. I live in a rural part of Ohio, but I live uh, in the, Cleveland's the closest city to me now. And uh, I do stuff in Cleveland or did before COVID uh, stopped me from mm-hmm. wanting to do that anymore. Um, and, um, and I think that Howard's attitude really captures a spirit of Cleveland in a fun way. His, um, how he, I don't want to sound salty about Cleveland, but like how Howard is the, the victim of circumstance that the like big decisions are being made far away from me. And I never get to talk to the people who do it. I'd really like to give them a piece of my mind. That's like a spirit I feel like lives in Cleveland that, that Howard embodies. So he's like a really good represent, representative of the city in that way. Huh. Because I thought I was reading every time I read this, Howard felt like he was dumping on Cleveland as much as he was celebrating it. Gerber's dumping on Cleveland mm. with his hacky airplane food comedy. And his very copious amounts of narration. Right. Well, that's the Bronze Age of it all. Although I got to say, actually, this is like, I can show you 80 stuff that's like twice as bad as this. Well, I mean, all of it here felt deliberate like he was aping another book, which in some senses he was. Howard the Duck number one is making fun of, or maybe not making fun of, but aping a lot of sword and sorcery tropes and specifically Conan the Barbarian. And specifically the Conan comics that Marvel was publishing in the 70s. Oh, yeah. Hence the, um, you know, Red Sonia-looking Beverly and Howard about to face off against a barbarian on the cover. Although um, although she's definitely Red Sonia-looking, I just want to um, do my uh, obligatory spot every time we talk about something even vaguely touching up against this for Margaret Brundage, a really cool artist who did the covers of a lot of those pulps, including Conan books mm-hmm. of that era. 
and whose artwork has like a really interesting female gaze spin on what a genre that is like very famously male gazy mm-hmm. and she's kind of the mother of the whole thing so like all of the um cheesecakey fantasy women art is just like a perversion of all the wonderful beauty that margaret brundage once stood for in my opinion um but i saw some like brundage cover homage stuff specifically in this uh issue and this issue's a bop it's really funny and fun and it moves and there's a lot going on yeah takes a few swings at how polluted the rivers are always fun well, I believe, when did the cuyahoga last uh, catch on fire um i don't know definitely a lot in the 70s it's the name of our local beer anyway the burning river <laughs> oh boy from, uh, <laughs> from great lakes breweries it's delicious yeah. i um, love the villain i <laughs> Pro Rada, <laughs> who's um, so he's a parody of like the uh, the Conan wizards who were uh, st- chalking up the comics in this era, yeah. and those Conan wizards would spill over into other Marvel books for an issue or two. You can find them fighting the X Men and Spider Man. Yeah, they're everywhere. Yeah, so what's funny is this isn't even like a huge departure, but they still have fun with it. The wizard is like obsessed with accounting. <laughs> he has a uh, was it the cosmic calculator? Yeah, and, yeah, and this That's is like great. the level of a. This is the seventies parody of it all, where it's just oh, yeah. like a. It's just like these Mad Magazine things, where it's just like instead of the Infinity Gauntlet, it's the Infinity Paw Print or something. Hey, I had a lot of fun with Pro Rata. I just liked all of the. Yeah, I like Pro Rata too. No shade. <laughs> <laughs> Pro Rata was funny. He was a good villain. I'm sad that he's uh, not coming back anytime soon. Probably. Yeah. Uh, this is also the issue where Howard meets Beverly who is, like, his main supporting character is his girlfriend, they live together, and for better or worse, a lot of the joke with Beverly kind of boils down to, like, can you believe this hot chick would want to fuck a duck? But in these early issues, that doesn't get laid on too thick, and Beverly's pretty funny and cool. Yeah, she is. I like having the normal character to the superhero, and, I mean, in this case... The Doctor Who companion, if you will? Kinda, yeah, but just... More of a that that nice large supporting cast who gets to balance out, but here in this case, the the more op- optimistic Beverly is a good counterpoint for the very cynical Howard. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a good vibe. Um, it's it's a dynamic I think that's similar to that really good Silver Surfer run by Dan Slott and yeah. Mike Allred mm-hmm. with Dawn and the Silver Surfer, but he's morose. Silver Surfer's morose, where Howard is cranky. Yeah. Yeah. And he gets to work with Spider-Man. Yeah, and Spidey's really fun in this issue when we get to borrow Jonah for a scene. Spider-Man has to has to hitch a ride on a on a helicopter cuz there aren't enough tall buildings to get him to the island. Yeah, classic joke. Also, I would just love for somebody to compile a list, maybe I will have to do this, of every time Spider-Man has to web-sling in a place that's not New York City and that it's just it always goes wrong. It's very funny. Always goes wrong. I have a great issue I from the 90s when I was a kid of um, Spider-Man is going to Jersey and he runs out of buildings, so he's got to jump from truck to truck on the Jersey Turnpike and he's pissed about it. <laughs> I bet. Especially if they're so so sp- spaced out as they tend to be. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, fun issue. And um, at the end, there was one joke that I called out as a like, this is funny, this made me laugh, and this is also like a good example of like Gerber doing a dad joke that is good. Mm-hmm. Which one? Which is... Webfoot meet webhead. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That made, that made me laugh like pretty joy, uh, joyfully, so I had to take a note of it. And I, I'm not gonna n- note in particular jokes as we go here and there, but I just thought that was like a great summation of like um, Ger- Gerber's dad joke vibe. Yeah. 
And um, it continues throughout the series. But the next issue focuses... I, I think number two might be my favorite of the ones we've read. Uh-huh. Uh, where nothing can save you now, Duck. You're at the mercy of the deadly space turnip, proclaims the cover. <laughs> Yeah, and again, that's just like, uh, that's 70s comedy for you, right? It's just like, what if you were menaced by a space turnip? Absolutely absurd with, taken with the the complete sincerity of the Silver Age, but applied with enough of the um, self-awareness of the Bronze Age, but even still, really goofy. So damn goofy. What's most notable about this in general is that um, I think you will always find that the um, the critical or the parody or whatever often will drive like the direction of where serious culture goes. Mm-hmm. And I feel like um, I'm not going to say there's a direct line from Howard the Duck to Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen, but but you can definitely see the trajectory from this being a subversive, controversial comic where everyone sued each other and they were all talking shit. It was like a diss track Mm -hmm. for all the other comics to then thinking, no, but seriously, what if uh, a turnip man threatened Earth? And we all, how would we react? A small, petty humans, and then that's the 80s. Hmm. I can see that. Yeah. I still think turnip man and space turnip not showing up again is, is a travesty. I agree. Uh, that feels like the kind of poll Grant Morrison would make. Yeah, Grant, if you're listening, which we hope you are, we know you can be the one to bring turnip, space turnip back if, to threaten whoever they let you write. If they want to work for Marvel again. Who knows? They don't. <laughs> From what I've been reading, they don't. No. There was an all... It's all a dream gag in this second issue that kind of pulled the rug out from under me and I chuckled. Yeah, that did get me. It was a clever, it was a clever way of tying it together, too. It's like, well, you can believe it, but also it didn't... You know, they didn't let it last too long. Yeah, and it was, like, structurally good comics. It's just, like, um, the the script flowed nicely, the panel uh, layout made you feel like something was a little bit uh, weird in a way that was different than it's usually weird. (laughs) That's, like, a hard needle to thread, I think. Yeah, it is. Especially where, where you've got your talking duck who's chomping on cigars in the middle of Cleveland. And this is the probably of the run of the issues we read, like, the most Clevelandy, right? Yeah, it starts to move away from, from that and moves towards, I guess, more, more for a bit, well, like, just straight-up parody. And then then we get like the, the uh, New York stuff. Yeah. But uh, Kidney Lady um, appeared in that Civil War issue. I was looking her up in the Marvel Wiki. No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's just, like, one of the characters who's like, Hey, Howard, aren't you going to register? And I love uh, Kidney Lady being a character... I think of her as being that John Mulaney bit about the lady who smokes cigarettes and makes up all the New York Post headlines. <laughs> That's the voice I hear, uh, Kidney Lady. Uh, I read her in my head. Um, but yeah, just yeah, just uh, give me a bunch of like weird, cranky, flavorful characters, like neighbors and stuff. That's yeah. what I want in a Howard comic. I kind of wish they had he had decided to dig deeper into Cleveland and really, you know, make that the base of operations. But I guess part of the of Howard's arc is also that he wants to go home and he's not going to be able to go home from Cleveland. Right. And I get that he's going on adventures, but I do wish that they had done a little bit more of a, um, not grounding like realistic, but grounding like it's anchored. Like I wish he came yeah. back and he, to an apartment building and he had a bunch of wacky neighbors or something that I'll ask him about his adventures. I mean, he does have a bunch of wacky neighbors and we meet a few of them in, 
<laughs> in issue four. Are those the ones? Oh my god, my uh, we'll get to issue four, but um... okay. But first, issue three, which um, so this is a Shang Chi parody. Yeah. Yeah, that's the the right tone. I mean, that's what's gonna happen. With I mean, they would they were parodying a book that was already kind of yeah. Right. So for all its for all its positives, which we'll probably end up talking about soon. Not soon as in this episode, but soon as in in the future. The Master of Kung Fu book, which uh, was Shang Chi's book. Uh, this is making well directly parodying it with the Master of Quack Fu, uh, and you know. He also seems to be poking fun at just people's enjoyment of martial arts media, like that whole genre. And you kind of get the feeling that buried under all of the, like, superficial stuff, which largely reads as pretty racist now, that he's got, like, a pretty funny point about cultural appropriation, but those words haven't been invented yet. Yeah. And and kind of how... seems like he's trying to say that. Kind of. He definitely is also trying... I guess he's also pushing back against the the tropes that he saw of like the wise master teaching you kung fu and you can learn it in a day and and kind of how he's also having a nice dig at consumerism and how he sees a lot of the the stuff not as like the martial art the art part of it and more It's as... not spiritual, it's like a product. Yeah. Yeah, and that's like a, a vibe you see through the '70s, and it's not like a, a brave perspective or anything. But no. um, but and I guess what's what's interesting to me is I wonder if you know just if we can do a counterfactual ahistorical ponderance. Mm-hmm. If like we did, you know, when Grant Morrison is told about uh, gender queer they then pronouns, uh, they immediately are like, oh yeah, dude, let's do that. Um, and I wonder if we could go back and talk to Team Howard uh, using the language we did today about in that issue, what it would look like. Like, because a lot of the jokes are pretty low-hanging fruit about just, like, we changed one letter or one word or something that rhymed or something. Yeah. But, yeah, but it seems really critical, like you're saying, of, like, the phenomenon of Americans, like, wanting to be martial arts monks because they're not. <laughs> they're and, coming from And the- violence, too. Just, like... In general, yeah, it, it's such a strange issue. I think in in what it's trying to say because it's not very subtle about what it's trying to say. It's just you read it and it's like, okay, I follow you, but also I don't. Well, I'll tell you, like I could, I've read this before, and I was kind of, I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, I remember the the vague shape of this thing because it's not, it, it's it. It's yeah. pretty scattershot and it moves pretty quick and it's just like from, yeah. from bit to bit to bit. As with all of them. I mean, he, they beat up someone called Count Macho. Yeah. That, that's Which, the one. Um, <laughs> In a diner. Um, I have, so, Elias, issue four, my notes. All right, let's do it. Read, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. What the fuck was issue four? <laughs> that was with... Uh, the Winky Man, when Howard the Duck goes to one of his neighbors who is bashing on the floor, and it turns out he has an alter ego in his sleep because he's always wanted to be a superhero. And so he runs around in, like, Ebenezer Scrooge outfit with the, the handkerchief over his mouth, and he just beats up muggers. 
So this is where the 70s parody completely loses me. Uh, like, there's just like a, like the Ebenezer Scrooge imagery that you definitely, I was like, oh, so is this like a, he's like sleepwalking in like a cartoon pajamas and it's about sleepwalking because he dreams it. Just like this one had vibes and they didn't add up to anything and I didn't follow this issue at all. I also didn't find it very funny. Yeah, this one was, it was one of the ones that was a bit more of a dud than the others. I still had fun just watching <laughs> Winky Man run around and speak in rhymes. But like, it, it, it takes some some jabs at art critics. <laughs> yeah, that can't be, yeah, it's just everything comes out of nowhere and there's there's no structure to hold it all together. So you end up with just like a pile of stuff and not all of it's terrible, but like, I, I, this was definitely the weakest issue of all the ones for me. Yeah, and I mean, each of the issues so far has, have been parodies of different genres of Marvel books, of, of just different books in general. Uh, the first one, Sword and Sorcery. The second, straight up superheroics. The third one, the Kung Fu stuff. This one... I guess is going back to the superheroics, but the well, the genre in the second issue is more like um, or I guess 1950- the sci-fi. Yeah, it's like 1950s theremin alien invader uh, yeah. hero fiction and um, like paperback type stuff. Yeah, and the and the fourth one that doesn't have a clear parody. It's definitely a superhero thing. It's definitely something with dreams. Um, and guess, there's definitely. Mm-hmm like winky man and i'm trying there's like a nursery rhyme so there's like this is also a, a particular genre of, of uh bronze age humor that irritates me go mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, just having like um cynical snide characters just like reciting a childish thing to prove that they disdain it but in doing so they end up just like doing it on the page right like they're the one who brings it to the story yeah. And that's kind of, it's just like, they seem like they were like mocking this like children's fairy tale nursery rhyme thing. And this like, ah, it's so stupid and childish. And I'm like, yeah, but why, then why'd you bring it up? <laughs> if you had nothing to say, if there's nothing to say. Ugh, yeah, I, I didn't have much to say about Winky Man other than I love the name. <laughs> I won't take Winky, I mean, if Winky, if, if Chips Zdarsky wants to bring back Winky Man to fight Daredevil, I wouldn't say no. But just like the third one, even though there was parts of it that read bad now, you could tell that there was a bunch of ideas of what it was criticizing. And in this, I didn't understand who was, who were you criticizing? Yeah. Yeah. People who have dreams, I guess. I guess. Artists. Layabout artists who need, to, I guess it, it, it's a, I it could be about male fantasies, but I don't think it quite goes that far. I think what you're saying about um, the art, criticizing the artist makes a lot of sense because what you were saying about the tension between all the creative teams here and um, how scattershot this issue feels as if two people were trying to make something together but weren't quite communicating. Yeah. Although that was the second issue with Gene Colan as his consistent appearance. So they were probably still trying the, to figure uh, The it great out. Gene Colan. Yeah. Issue five. Wrestling. It's wrestling. I love it's that wrestling. stuff. This you was a fun one. This was, I, re, I like the focus on this one where the wrestling is incidental and it's mm-hmm. clearly pulling from the Spider-Man origin story in that regard. Like whatever Spider-Man was pulling from for the, you know, defeat just, just like, Big Man in three minutes for money. Which is like, yeah, indie wrestling shows. Yeah. But it also had a clear, not a clear message, but like... <laughs> They plot. need money. Yeah, <laughs> they need money. They need to make rent. Uh, Beverly makes two dollars and ten cents an hour modeling, which I don't know what minimum wage was back then, but 
considering a chocolate bar was 25 cents and now chocolate bars what a dollar the comic book is 25 cents that's and they're now four dollars it's pretty wild. That is wild. Yeah, the, the, unlike the previous issue, this one had a plot. There was a story. There was a conflict. Characters wanted something. There was a beginning, a middle, and an end. Like, uh, there was a story, which was nice. Um, and it was pretty, like, breezy and funny and lighthearted and good comics. Uh, I just want to specifically mention that I was disappointed that um, UCWF didn't show up. Elias, you know about UCWF? I don't. In the Marvel Universe, there is Unlimited Class Wrestling Federation, which is oh, wrestling right. for people with superpowers. I believe uh, you would have recently seen them at a Ben Grimm's bachelor party. And you, when we talked about the Armadillo. That's right, because yeah, because Armadillo is a major UCWF character. So I was just disappointed. I feel like Howard should hang out with those UCWF guys. I feel like that would be a great ensemble. Howard and D-Man seems like a story somebody <laughs> is just begging to tell. Yeah, totally. Yeah, but I thought that uh, I agree. This issue was really fun. Issue six <laughs> was a trip, huh? What? Yeah, that was an EC Comics parody. Oh yeah. So I was writing down like a Mary Shelley Victorian horror Gothic castle. Yeah, but it was EC Comics. It was like so. Yeah, EC Comics is such a fun thing to parody. They, they those things had such a structure. They were like the Twilight Zone. Yeah, like spookier or like House of Mystery, House of Secrets. Yeah, I you love got that. Got that that melty blood font. <laughs> the secret of cellar sinister, but unfortunately, no professor, Doctor Essex, whatever, Mister Essex, Nathan, Nate, Cape Man. Well, yeah. What's so, his uh, title? Does he... does he have one? Whose title? Nathaniel Essex, Mister Sinister. He's just Mister. He's just Mister. He, he doesn't even... have a doctor or a. Last I checked, I looked into this, I don't think there has ever been him getting a doctorate. He did speak before the Royal Society um, about Charles Darwin, or like in the era of Darwin. He was like a rival of Darwin's. Ah. Um, And I imagine you have to have some sort of academic accreditation to like get that far, but uh, he always went by Mr. Sinister. Maybe he disdains universities and their their stodginess. He, you know, he he does uh, real science with his hands. Real science. This issue introduces a character who will be around for a little while, actually, which is Jun Moon Yuk. Yeah? Yeah. I um didn't exactly make the connection when I was reading it, but then when I was, uh, I just Googled it. I was like, did, did that character ever appear in other uh, Marvel stuff? Because he, you can feel that he, um, he, he mm-hmm. feels more like an ongoing character. He doesn't feel like he's going to disappear at the end of the issue. He sounds like, he seems like he's going to be out there for a while, coming back, getting into mischief. Yeah. Um, but that's when I discovered that he was based on the Reverend Sung Young Moon. That he was. Now, my, uh, experience with, the the Reverend Sung Young Moon and, uh, followers of his teachings was that when I was a senior in high school, I had a um, physics teacher who was a white dude. I don't remember his name, but it was like Mr. Murphy or something in that line. Um, And he was really involved in the Church of Sun Young Moon. The Unification um, Church. The Unification Church is the preferred name? Yeah. I I know uh, derogatory names that people used at the time, which uh, I imagine he wouldn't have appreciated. But... He got like arrested and students found out and there was rumors about him. And so that was so I've never really had to grapple with um, this order in any real way and like their teachings and what they're actually about. It was just like rumors in the upstate New York town I grew up in. 
mm-hmm. and like gossip. Um, and so it was weird because I don't feel much more informed by this parody than I did by that gossip, you know? Yeah. I don't know if you you did any research. or Did you know that this was a parody when you were reading it? Oh, yeah. I I clocked it right away, um, especially when he said they, they called themselves the, the Yukis or the Yuckies, depending on, I guess, how you Probably pronounce it. Probably Yuckies. That's, that sounds like a... That sounds like more, the kind of parody. Yeah, about the yeah. level we're working on here. No, I... I my ex- interaction with the with that has always been you know in whatever media there's always people at the airport handing out documents and flowers right and on the subway yeah uh, where where i've encountered them i suppose um yeah so i um god i wish i had more context for this when i was re i i found that out recently when i was just like that character struck me i wonder if he was in other issues and i was like oh my god it was a whole political parody yeah but yeah it wasn't a very incisive parody and it can't help but feel uh I think it was just a stand-in for a non-major religion that was more culty and looking for a home. I think that's the... why that was picked. Like if Scientology was around, that would have been the parody. I mean, Scientology was around, but it was. They were standing on the. They were standing on the down low. Uh-huh. Yeah, man. L. Ron Hubbard used to run with Aleister Crowley in London. Huh. Those guys lived on the Earth at the same time and probably had sex with each other. Okay. It's something I like to think about sometimes. And um, that's who I think about when I think about culty stuff. But just like if you were wondering where he got the, all those ideas from on Scientology, he was hanging out with the Satanist guy. That, that would do it. But yeah, so it's like he's parodying cults. And again, I, I knew a guy and people were kind of mean to him about it. And I don't know, maybe uh, the Reverend Sun Young-moon's order. I, like, uh, I really wish I was more informed about this. But it, the the style of jokes doesn't seem like it's responding to actions or beliefs that they have. It's really like this punching down kind of humor about like weirdos who um, would like reject society. And that's such a counter theme to this comic. And that's why I think it, it stuck out as weird to me. Mm-hmm. Because it was saying, like, it was it was like uh, being mean to these guys for being outsiders, but celebrating Howard for being an outsider, but not doing a good job at explaining to me why these outsiders were worthy of my scorn. Mm-hmm. And well, yeah, I mean, they, because they were pathetic and looking for a home and would uh, uh, conspire with, uh, you know, like insidious people. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's all like uh, comic book bullshit. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, I this was fun. I like the uh, the EC comics part of it, but the uh, the political stuff of it kind of uh, felt weird. The, the more I learned, the more I li- the less I liked it. Yeah, it was like it's, I think it felt like it was it was just a stand in, and that he wasn't not he wasn't trying to, but he was kind of just he couldn't make fun of the hippies anymore. Yeah, he can't make fun of the hippies anymore. It's the seventies. I well, that may yeah, but that means that probably there's probably new targets that are, I don't know. That doesn't say, get fresh material. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, get fresh material for the seventies. Uh, and this was actually this the first two parter, right? Because issue seven uh, goes right into it, and a bunch of these characters of in the what do you want to call it? The order, the the fellowship of which the the people who are hanging out in the creepy castle are coming along. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember. There was just the, the 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 kid. There was the kid who was hanging around, and then uh, the Dragonsworths, Patsy Dragonsworth. Um, I was just struck because I thought these guys were going to become those wacky neighbor supporting cast, and they don't last oh, the issue most of them. No, they don't. 
No, that's what struck me is I thought these guys felt and I guess that's a compliment because these guys felt like uh, three dimensional characters from the moment they were introduced. I wanted to get to know them and then I was shocked when they were taken off the table. Yeah. Yeah, it, w- it was pretty shocking. We get a cover that has um, a rampaging gingerbread man. Yeah, clearly pairing the Kirby monster comics. Yeah, 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 yeah. The comic book parody stuff feels really loving, and then the fact that it's like a gingerbread man again feels like um, it's laughing at childishness, even though it clearly loves the Kirby comic stuff. Yeah, and I mean it's it is funny that you know what is she (laughs) what is she raised? Well, it's a gingerbread cookie. She was just doing baking, (laughs) but it's a monster. But it, but you're right. It has that like Mad Magazine parody feel. Yeah, and I grew up on Mad Magazine, so I'm doing the thing I'm criticizing in criticizing it. I mean, it's not. Tr- it, it's doing the thing without this the self awareness that it is doing the thing. I think that is the problem. Even while it is fun to read, like the comic thinks it's better than at times, like. I'm, I have all this, this insightful stuff to say about this thing that I'm making fun of without where Mad Magazine is like, I'm just going to poke fun at this thing because I think it's hilarious. Real size spurrier of the 70s is what you're saying. Ooh, ooh brutal. Yeah, so we, we had a whole episode where we talked about X-Men comics, and that was our conclusion on size spurrier was that he was, um, he, he, what he was doing was fun, but he was so smug that it was important. Yeah. Um, and that's where, and this isn't... What, I, I recommend these issues. I had fun reading them, and they aren't consistently like that, but sometimes the jokes dip into that territory, but because it's uh, targeting targets that feel less relevant to the world we live in today, or the world that I live in today, um, it doesn't feel threatening, and you can kinda, I could just uh, laugh at it. Yeah, and it doesn't always make the central joke of every issue the, the greater issue, like Howard is just kind of commenting on it as he encounters it. Like, he is an outsider's perspective being like, look how ridiculous this thing is. And notably, um, Howard is, like, not really fighting these challenges. He often will, like, kind of flail at them and by fortune or luck will, will, like, kind of bumble his way to something resembling victory or at least survival. Yeah, like, in this case, the whole house blows up. Yeah. And that's just the beginning. Uh, because the rest, they suddenly meet up with, I don't know who this guy is supposed to be a parody of, but Dreyfus Gulch, the country western star. I, maybe it's just supposed to be like Nashville, the, you know, the money of the, of the country scene pouring into candidates. And the rest of this issue Probably sets like up. Probably uh, Reagan as an actor joke, too. Oh, it could be. But it's setting up, but this is pre-Reagan. This was 76. This is the election of 76. Pre-Reagan in politics, but Reagan's a famous movie star at this point in Westerns and stuff. Oh, you're right. You're right. From, like, the 50s. You're right. I, th- I thought you meant in politics. Well, I I mean, I'll, again, I wish uh, we had... If we had meticulous minute-to-minute research, I could tell you, but, um, yeah, like, Reagan was probably making political rumblings right now, making political overtures and speeches. Um, no, he, he, governor of he was already governor of California. So there you go. So there we uh, go. it's um Actually, he had just that's, left. And that's that's what the parody is, right? That that makes sense. It's a Reagan... He, uh, Governor of California was a cowboy movie star, and it was, like, making fun of the cultural scene that, that like, thinks that this, like, uh, chintzy, fake American cowboy mascot should be our leader. Mm-hmm. Oh, That's the parody, right? Yeah. Although, in this case, the star, he isn't really running to be the president. He's kind of just the money behind it, or partially yeah. the money behind it. He's thrown, thrown his weight in. Um, but... 
essentially Howard and Beverly get sucked up into a third party race <laughs> to become president of the United States. They are supposed to be, you know, they're trying to figure out, you know, who to support. And it's, I mean, it's a fun, fun parody of, of, you know, the American political system, but it, it feels a little, this and the a next little... issue have a lot of, have the problem of a lot of these parodies where you want to parody both parties because they have their idiosync- idiosyncrasies, but it ends up like getting weirdly mealy mouthed and not taking a real stance. Sure. Although again, this is a particularly, uh, this, th- that, and this that's era. A, right. Like right now I'm extremely sensitive to that because I experienced that like with close people in my life who will sometimes equivocate in ways that are infuriating and indeed like put me personally at risk. Mm-hmm. So, like, I share your sensitivity, and I know what you mean, but this is less of a parody of, like, Democrats and Republicans and, like, legislation than it is a parody of, like, how a bill becomes a law schoolhouse rock. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like a a parody of, like, the aesthetics and— The dysfunction uh, of the political machine. And the idea of the dysfunction of any political machine, right? Because, like, you could just as easily—you could pretty much replace all the names and, like, the specifics with, like, Soviet stuff right now, and this would have been the same story. Yeah. Although they don't have elections in, in the USSR, but um, no. but you could like, but like none of the jokes about America didn't also apply to the Soviet Union. You're right. I think I think in in episode not episode in issue eight his that speech page that was mostly what I was what stuck in my head. Yeah, um, it was like the policies that he's talking about as like we're supposed to kind of see it, but it's also hard to tell because Howard he's just this curmudgeon who's there. You read like. It's hard to tell if Gerber is parodying it because he's like, I think this is the best option. Or if he's just like, this is what Howard would say. There's a reason why he loses. Right. It's, there's a truth to... Um, were you ever a Gravity Falls fan alive? That's just something you would love. Um, it's a lot like the Grunkle Stan running for office episode. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> Grunkle Stan and Howard are pretty much identical personalities. Kind of, yeah. Um, although ha- although Howard has Grunkle. less of the grifter in him. I mean, we'll talk about that in the next episode. Oh, that's true. Uh, a little bit but yeah just like uh the same like uh of course he loses he's crude and crass and so and dirty and uh common <laughs> but i really actually lo- uh, issue seven and especially issue eight i remember why i wanted to read up until this story this story is fun and vital and again this is where the plot feels tightest is issue eight for me totally um and all the like new york central park stuff was pretty funny and the like bellhop intrigue was such a like 70s monty python bit (laughs) i i think i do love how when in issue eight he gets the pr people and they're like yeah so your assassination quotient is at an eight that's twice both of the other candidates that means you must be doing something right because everyone hates you (laughs) Right. Well, and also it makes total sense, right? Howard is so loathsome. <laughs> of course everyone would hate him. That's what's, yeah. that's what's funny. It was interesting seeing, like, an explicit reference to, one, an election, a specific year election, and the candidates. Because in modern superhero comics, they will not do that. Uh, they do that every so often. And I can show you times when it's happened in the last ten years. But, um, but not the last five years. The Marvel Wikia tells me that this is Jimmy Carter's first appearance in Marvel Comics. Huh. Oh, yeah, because he's this is him running against Gerald Ford. Yeah. So if he just like he I think he he shows up on a panel somewhere and that's this that's considered his it's not just a mention. So it's his first appearance as a Marvel character. Yeah, they both show is, up. But they were commenting on Howard's um, 
candidacy as a third party candidate. Yeah. Well, uh, so I wrote um, reflecting what I, the, what I think you're trying to say is I wrote, it's not as political as you'd hope. Then I crossed that out and I wrote, it's not as political as I'd hope. Where <laughs> I think that there is a better, more specific version of the story. As long as we're uh, including Carter and Ford, where Howard can respond to their platforms a little bit in like a funny, dark duck way that like, there's like, just like, that's, that's the best version of the story. And this ain't that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I wrote, my conclusion was the whole thing had like a Muppet spirit. And I would kind of yeah. apply that to, to all these issues. It has the same sort of like irreverence and like, and like, um, mischievousness, but like ultimately kind of a good heart. Yeah. And I watched a bunch of Muppet Show from this era recently. There is an episode where you can see Kermit the Frog playing the guitar in front of the Confederate flag. Mmm. Along next to Mr. Johnny Cash. Like, uh, I, I, Muppets wasn't always uh, the, the beautiful hippie bastion we remember it to be. Like, uh, it was also a product of it, the same era that this is. Yeah. But they both share a good heart that wants to, um, that wants to, like, believe in people that I like. Yeah. For sure. And one of the one so anyone who is reading this in the in the major not the major in the the collections uh will notice that we skipped over the Marvel Treasury edition number 12 story. I would go back and read it. It's a lot of fun. It's just Doctor Strange and Howard the Duck kind of screwing around and it's great good stuff. Completely irrelevant to the larger political plot uh that happens. And in fact, the political plot continues into the next issue that we did not read for this. Yes. Well, and this, uh, the but this is the Howard running, Howard running for president is kind of like the definitive Howard story that they call back to a lot in terms of continuity. That's what everyone remembers. And like they say, didn't a duck run for president a while back is like something that happened in that people in Marvel remember. (laughs) That's true. We're about to get jump way ahead to issues 30 and 31. And this is a big turning point for me personally. But before we do that, do you have anything you want to add before we leave these first eight issues behind? You know, I don't. I uh, We talk a lot about them. That's okay. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the most that, that I would want to say about it is just, it was both more than I thought it was going to be in terms of the way it parodied, the way it, the way it worked. And also, it was less irreverent than I thought. I thought this was going to be a lot more... Biting. Yeah, I thought the satire would be a lot more biting. I thought everything would be a lot, you know, sharper. But it wasn't. The, it, it's... Well, and Gerber has such a uh, reputation as a firebrand because all the lawsuit stuff. Yeah, but also, I mean, his his other work. Like, I've, I've read some of his other stuff. I'm like, this this kind of, like... I guess maybe it's because it, it was the 70s still. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm not as much of a. I, again, I know there's people who are like Gerber uh, enthusiasts, and I like Gerber, but I, I don't. Uh, I don't know him like that. Yeah, same. Okay, so then I'm reading issue thirty, right? Yeah, brand new writer, same artist. Well, wait, hang on, hang on. So I'm, I, I'm reading issue thirty, and I wasn't looking that closely at the credits, although uh, I jumped from um, Hoopla to uh, Marvel Unlimited for this. They I'm didn't have the second issue- volume. On Hoopla? Uh-huh. Um, it was just, I was doing it in a rush, and it was easier to find it there because Fair enough. it was buried. I couldn't figure out which volume it was, and it was buried in whatever it gotcha. was. Uh, the later, the, the, the modern Howard stuff Hoopla has through and through, um, the earlier stuff it has in fits and starts. Makes sense. But so I'm reading number 30, and I wrote, um, I wrote, so the sentence I wrote, I, I, wrote, I, I wrote this sentence in my notes a couple times, but uh, what I came down to was, it's not that the writing or the art have gotten stronger by any means, but I feel like the cohesion ineffably has come together, is what I wrote. And it, um, 
and I and I was thinking as I was reading uh, issue thirty that uh, it it makes so much sense that after writing uh, after so many issues together with this writer and the artist that they finally figured it out. <laughs> then I finished the issue and I'm just like, wait a second, Bill Mantlo, he's a writer, so he wrote some of these issues, and I realized he wrote issue thirty. And then I was just like, oh, holy shit. So it's actually, uh, I'm just kidding. This is not about, this is not cohesion between a creative team working out their differences. This is Mantlo coming in. (laughs) Weirdly, I think Mantlo and Gerber have a really similar sense of humor. It's like you said, the irreverence is somewhat tame, but like definitely like a Looney Tunes. It's anarchic. Mm -hmm. And, but I think that Mantlo to me is the stronger of the two as a comic writer. I think Gerber's a little bit more, I wrote, Gerber's a little bit more punk rock. Huh. Um, he comes out really passionately with a lot of messy ideas. Um, but even his tightest stories in the first eight issues weren't as tight as any of these two issues. It's interesting because not that I disagree, but I had more fun with the first eight than, than these two. I was kind of yeah, like. had a little bit less energy. Yeah, it had less energy. I was reading, I'm like. Okay, this just feels it it felt more cohesive and you know not controlled but every kept together but at the same time it it didn't really feel like Howard as much. It didn't feel like Howard Yeah, it the felt Doc. more like a it felt like more like a Marvel adventure book. Maybe yeah. it could have been the thing just as easily. Yeah, exactly. And it probably didn't uh, help that we skipped a whole bunch of there were so many like caption boxes were like see what happened in issue 15 and issue 18 and issue 25 and i was like oh okay. well that's because this is I, I, my other note this was a great finale of like uh if you read the whole howard the duck series everything like adds up here there's a bunch of payoffs like um i wish more comic got a good finale like these yeah <laughs> goes out fighting dr bong the final bong and i wanted to also say dr bong is a marvel villain that shows up a lot deadpool's fought dr bong on a couple of occasions yeah it's it's surprising that he just keeps coming back dr bong if you're listening and you never read uh, a comic with him has a bell for a head which makes a bong sound you see if there's another uh, meaning of that word you know i'm sure in the 70s they did not know what you were talking about they didn't not have at all in the 70s right hmm? they didn't invent weed yet in the 70s did they did they know about bongs uh, not uh, under the comics code. Right. Uh, under the comics code, Cheech and Chong are just friends. <laughs> I mean... But uh, I like Dr. Bong. And what Dr. Bong captures for me is the thing about Mad Magazine that I think uh, the internet kind of uh, makes a little bit more difficult was that Mad Magazine was something being told to, sold to kids that their parents weren't really comfortable with because it's like making jokes about stuff that their parents thought was impolite or improper. Mm-hmm. And right, like Bart Simpson also represents this. And what's funny about Dr. Bong is your stodgy parents might not know even know what a bong is. And you're like, no, Dr. Bong is the sound a bell makes. Surely, and you could just like tell your parents, surely I don't know what that is. I'm just an innocent teenager. <laughs> But you do know, and you think you're getting away with it, and t- that's like a wonderful teenage feeling. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the part of the, the Howard that Dr. Bong represents, and I think that's like an important part, too, is that Howard, when the kids in the 70s were reading this, they were like, oh, yeah, it's just like a goofy Donald Duck thing. Don't worry about it. But like they felt like they were high- getting away with this. Mm. Um, yeah, and these last two issues... Uh, totally rip for me i think they're i think they're fun but you're right there's a little bit less of that spark yeah the i guess the hard part for me at least was still i wanted to go back and then read everything in between and be like does this hit harder if you know the because part of the i think arc and ending 
let me find those words again. They're they're floating in the ether. They're somewhere. They form they'll form a sentence one day, uh, but. All of the stuff with Beverly and with the, the, the other characters that are stuck in the the hospital uh, and, you know, his this uncle named Lee, I think all of that stuff would the, – the emotional climax was the most important part of these two issues. And because we hadn't really experienced any of the, any of the stuff in between, it felt less – you know, it was lessened. And because it didn't have – and because it was entirely uh, – concerned with how you know with kind of the mad magazine marvel comics parody instead of the larger political parodies or everyday life parodies or you know that kind of stuff it was very self-referential it just felt like it, it was a little bit less just a little less than the other stuff even though it was a lot more cohesive between well, the like two a issues superhero adventure the villain takes you to his secret lair and then you face him there and then like you have like a moral victory but he gets away it just like it was like following good superhero beats yeah in a way that the earlier stories didn't have any beats they were just like bits and bits and bits and every... the, the difference was with the uh first eight issues every time i turned the page i had no sense of safety of what i was about to see it could be literally anything and with and these the every time too. i what's that and the paneling well, that's the the cohesion. It's not that the art is better, but the it's it's more pointed because it's like telling a story now instead of just doing random shit. Mm-hmm. And so when you would get to the last panel on a page, you would excitedly turn the page instead of like fearfully or like um you know there wasn't any um the my the anticipation was uh, always delivered upon. I would be like, oh my god, what's gonna happen next? I turn the page and find out. Not I turn the page and then we'd be like, and then like a gingerbread man would be stalking Cleveland. Hey, that part was fun. No, that was fun, but it was um, it was shocking because it was so like nonsensical and non sequitur. Oh yeah, and and this was so um, everything paid off to your expectations, and there's something to be said for both. For sure, for sure, for sure. We're just about out of time for Howard this week, um, but overall. Uh, do you think you're going to go back and try to fill in those gaps severed? Would you recommend this to somebody who is like marginally Howard curious? Or do you think that this is for uh, true fans only? It's hard for me to say. I think if I were to recommend anyone jump in, I would actually hand them not the fir- his first appearance. Because I, I read the – basically I read read the issues in order in the collection and then I jumped to 30 and 31. I would recommend them starting with those two backup stories because they're short, they're fun, they're utterly ludicrous. And then maybe, you know, have them read a few of those first issues. Definitely the turnip and definitely um, issue seven and eight. Although they might be a little confused by the sudden appearance of a gingerbread man. But I guess if you take that as face value, it's like a cold open. Honestly, context doesn't help that much. No, it doesn't. Uh, For the presidential Um, stuff... And I read a couple issues more. I think issues 9 and 10, I think even 11. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh okay, God. so it sounds like a, it sounds like you think that there's a, something here. I think there's for something me, here. Interest- it's hard to it's hard for me to say yes. If you're if you're marginally curious in Howard the Duck, I would definitely okay, read these. You. The first man thing, the adventure into fear one is I mean, it, it, it's it's rough. But wait, I, I think I think this is actually an important distinction we're drawing here because the, we both like this, and you think that there's this spark or there's something that's resonating with you, and that's less true for me, and my appreciation of this is largely academic. I like the way it reflects other things that I'm interested in that it's connected to. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so if that describe, if either of those descriptions describe you, you're likely to enjoy it, right? Like if you're, sure. um, if you, if you want to be taken by this like zany, uh, creative seventies, uh, yarn, or if you're just like, what the fuck was going on in those comics in those days? Um, these are totally worth checking out and not too unpleasant to spend time with. Yeah. But it's not like you're going back and you're going to be laughing the whole way through. Or like when we revisited original Spider-Man where we could see, yeah, this is the spark and it's still there. Yeah. Even with um, the barriers of time. But we're going to be reading more Howard the Duck by some modern masters that I'm actually really excited for. I haven't read all these issues, but I've read a bunch of them and they're delightful. Yeah. So we are going to be reading, it's called Howard the Duck 2015A and 2015B because Secret Wars happened and all the series got canceled and then restarted. Uh, That's that Hickman clout. Yeah. So we're going to be reading the whole thing, the this whole run. It was 2015A, which was only five issues, and then 2015B, issues 1 through 11, and we're going to be reading The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl number six because there was a crossover with Howard the Duck. Uh, we And you can find all of this in volumes zero through two of Howard the Duck or in the recently released Omnibus, which also collects the story from War of the Realms, War Scrolls number two. We're not really going to be talking on that. We might touch it. It's like a four page story that was, you know, it was fun, but not really part of the run. Um, I'm excited. Those are uh, fun stories. I haven't read. I've definitely read the uh, the A, the 2015A. I'm not sure how much of B I've read, and it's going to be interesting to compare them because that's a lot less political and a lot more just like goofs. Oh goofs. yeah, <laughs> goofs the whole way through. Yeah, goof. It's a real. Next episode is going to be called a uh, Goofy Howard. <laughs> Not a Howard movie. No, that's gonna be when. <laughs> that's gonna never happen because you're not gonna win our bet. But that would be that hypothetically in the alternate universe. Anyway, Elias, if people want to hear your goofs on the greater internets, where might that be found? They can find me on Twitter at Quetzalish. That's Q U E T Z E L I S H. Um, it is my slogan for when I inevitably run for president as part of the Howard the Duck Party. Uh, and you can find me writing at multiversitycomics.com. Uh, I do lots of stuff. Riverdale is back. Riverdale is back. Riverdale is back. Where can they find Better you, Jenna? I can be found uh, on Twitter. I can be found tweeting at rambling underscore moose. Uh, you can also find me on multiversitycomics.com. It's a pretty great website where I write mostly about X-Men and sometimes other stuff too. Um, and you can find me published on Comic Book Herald where I write about all sorts of comics, sometimes Marvel, sometimes not. And you can find both of us next time when we're talking more about Howard the Duck. Excelsior. Black Excelsior.